The Home Office thinks that by sending everybody to prison, less people will come. And that's what academics call deterrent effect, by deterring people from coming. If you treat them really badly once they get here, basically, then less people will come. But there's never been any evidence that that works. So hello and welcome to the Stubby Rise podcast series. I'm your host, Nathan. Today I'm joined by Colin Yeo, who's an immigration and asylum barrister at Garden Court Chambers. He's also author of Welcome to Britain, Fixing Our Broken Immigration System, and founder and editor of the Free Movement blog. So welcome, Colin. Hi, Nathan, and thanks very much for having me on. No, it's a pleasure to have you on. Uh, Britain has left the the European Union, and a central part of the Leave campaign was this political rhetoric, taking back control of immigration. And so it's introduced a nationality and borders bill, which is going through its second reading in Parliament. The government are, in effect, adding flesh to the bones of that that political rhetoric of taking back control. So I'm delighted you, you've you joined us to, to break it all down for us. So let's start with, with nationality law changes. In light of the, the terrible Windrush scandal and Wendy Williams' report, whose recommendations the government fully accepted, does this bill correct any historical injustices that denied people citizenship? I think, I think the short answer to that is yes, it does. Um, so, you know, you'll, you'll hear a lot of um, rightly negative coverage of the bill because most mm. of it is bad news. But there is some positive stuff in there as well. And some of that is on, on nationality law. Okay. And there are two things that it does. Um, first of all, it corrects, I think, some of the final sort of historical gender injustice that we still see in British nationality law. Mm. So this is people who would have been born British or entitled to become British, but for the um, the fact that um, British nationality law only transmitted um, citizenship, nationality, basically through fathers in some circumstances mm. uh, and not through mothers. So there's this kind of gender discrimination there. Um, and that corrects some of that. I and mean, we, we've seen previous legislation improving things gradually, and this is this is another step in the right direction on that front. Mm. And then we also see some changes to um, the circumstances where somebody can naturalise. Mm. So this is where somebody is in the UK, they weren't British previously, perhaps they were a Commonwealth citizen or something like that, mm-hmm. and they apply for British citizenship. And this adds some discretion to the Home Office, basically, to waive some of the requirements that are, are in place at the moment. And it will make it easier for some people to gain British citizenship who were struggling previously. So th- there is some good news in that, Bill. Yeah, that's 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 brilliant. That's, that's really good to hear because... What we'll see later on in our discussions is um, quite some very interesting stuff. On deprivation of of citizenship, most people who who follow the news will have seen the Shamima Begum case, where she's born here and left this country as a child to go and marry an Islamic state fighter, and she's been deprived of her citizenship. What does the bill say on, on aspects like that? 
Well, I don't, I don't think it really comes up actually in the current legislation. Mm. So, it, as in in the bill that's before Parliament, and it's mm. kind of the government already has quite extensive powers to um, potentially to deprive people of citizenship as long as it doesn't leave them stateless. And the the only legal test that has to be met mm. um, is whether it's considered conducive to the public good in the opinion of the Secretary of State which is potentially you know, a really quite low bar, actually, because that's the bar that we see for, um, that's the threshold that we see for deportation in immigration cases. And, you know, a 12-month sentence is enough to get you deported. Now, that is not the approach that the Home Office and Secretaries of State have previously taken with citizenship deprivation. They have voluntarily exercised some restraint there, mm-hmm. um, but still we see... Um, slightly less, you know, less and less serious cases or more controversial cases um, coming up in that deprivation context. But th- but to be fair, mm-hmm. this bill doesn't make that any worse. It it's already not. pretty bad, and, right. and, and this bill doesn't make any worse, at least. Mm. I I wondered if we could sort of look at a case of um, of criminal liability because a lot of people who migrate to Britain who then become British citizenship may have some concerns about those members of their family or individuals who may be involved in some form of criminal activity who then serve a sentence. So the best example that I could probably give is, let's look at the controversial circumstances of of Rolf Harris, who committed very serious crimes and was sentenced to five years in prison. He's still here in Britain. He wasn't deported. He hasn't been denied his citizenship. How does the law operate there? Because there are some other groups in in society who will find that their loved ones get deported and get deprived of citizenship. So can you explain for for our audience how the law operates there? Yeah, of course. I, I, I can't and won't comment on, on an individual case like mm. you know, mentioning Rolf Harris or something like that. I'm always happy to talk about the law generally. Yeah. And we have seen, as I said a moment ago, um, slightly less serious offences mm. leading to citizenship deprivation. So in the past, essentially it was treasonous activities. And I'm, I'm using that term in sort of broad language you know that's not this yeah. that's not exactly the right wording of the legislation but it's broadly you know stuff that was contrary to national security mm-hmm. um, that betrayed the state in in some fundamental way but um the powers eventually um relaxed basically if that's the right word so that it was actually much more expansive it could be used in much wider circumstances mm-hmm. and for many years it wasn't so that the statute allowed the Secretary of State to deprive in these circumstances where it's conducive to the public good. Okay. But successive Secretaries of State didn't actually do that. It was kind of, it was a tool that stayed in the toolbox, so mm. so to speak. Um, and that changed around 2010. Um, mm. It was it was beginning to change, I think, by then. But from 2010, you see quite a steep increase in the number of um, uh, cases where you see deprivation action being taken. Mm-hmm. And then you hold, had the whole um, Syria issue where you've got people who are going abroad and acting in ways that were contrary to national security, no doubt. Um, but then I think something more controversially, we also started to to see it being used in a handful of what I would call ordinary criminal um, cases. Now, pretty horrible criminal cases. Um, the one that I'm thinking of was 
uh, essentially a sort of sex trafficking ring. So, you know, we're talking about bad criminal offences here, but we're not talking about treason or national security as such um so it, i'm not, not trying to minimize the significance of those those cases yeah. but they're basically ordinary criminal activity rather than kind of treasonous activity against the state or something like that and so we have seen um those powers started to be used in some of those cases mm-hmm. there's only one prominent um one where I've, I've seen it in the law reports i don't know if there are other cases coming up kind of bubbling up through mm-hmm. the the lower tribunals and so on that i haven't seen yet mm-hmm. um um, but I was, I can say I was quite worried to see the power sort of expanding to be used in that, in that sort of wider context. Um, and, and, you know, that, that's, that's something I think we need to resist because it's, it's people who have become citizens, they're part of our society, yeah. and yes, they should go to prison. Yes, they should be sort of punished for, for the horrendous things that they've done, but yeah. kind of cutting them out of our society when we've shaped them and sending them off to some other country for them to deal with doesn't mm. seem like a very responsible thing to do quite frankly you know that's that's very interesting let's let's move on to the changes to to asylum law now you've written a very interesting book welcome to britain um which details the changes that are made to asylum law by by various secretaries of state and this bill makes far-reaching changes, which are very, very significant. Talk to us about deferential treatment of people who arrive by irregular modes of arrival in Britain. Can these people still claim asylum here? Well, they can. And, um, you know, the reason for that is that we're signed up to the Refugee Convention and there's no talk of withdrawing from the Refugee Convention. So there are certain um, certain laws that we've agreed that we will apply in this country, essentially. Mm. Um, the, the This idea of differential treatment, it's, it's something that's been floating around for a while. I remember Theresa May talking about this when she was Home Secretary. Mm. And it's the idea that basically you treat people who come in small boats or lorries or by, by ways that you want to discourage, essentially. Mm. Um, you treat them pretty badly, but you treat other refugees who arrive lawfully um, much more generously. Mm. And there, there are a number of problems with that. I mean, the Refugee Convention doesn't distinguish between the two groups, for starters. Yeah. It just it doesn't require you to claim asylum in a safe country that you pass through. It, immun- it, it, it immun- immunises you from... Um, penalization um, from penalties for illegal entry in certain circumstances Mm. Um, and there aren't that many legal ways to come to the UK and the current government keeps on going on about introducing safe and legal routes so it's it's closed them down Mm. so we used to be part of what's often called the Dublin Convention and that's about removing people from the UK to their country of entry in Europe but it's also about reuniting people with their family members if their family's already in the UK and quite a few people every year were actually entering the UK often unaccompanied children to join their relatives who are already here so actually seeing the, the current government you know talking big about all this safe and legal route stuff but actually quietly just closing those routes down in the background and keeping quiet about it mm. um one of the things that i find strange about the legislation though is that there isn't really anything in British law that stops the government from doing all this stuff anyway. And this is a really sort of lawyer answer, so I'm sorry about that. But it's like (laughs) they don't need to give themselves the powers that they're talking about because they've Mm. already got them. Mm. And a lot of this legislation, a lot of this stuff in the the Nationality and Borders Bill, Mm. I think is 
it's just theatre in a way because they've actually got the power to do these things and often actually already starting to do them. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't need to pass an act that enables them to do it because they can do it already under existing powers. But they kind of they make they want to make it look like they're doing something. And and Pretty Patel, the Home Secretary, has been going on about what she she used to call the Sovereign Borders Bill and various other names she's given to it for about two years now. Mm-hmm. And we finally see the legislation. It's kind of it's like. It's like the emperor's clothes are. You know, it's very missing. thin. There's not. There's not actually a lot to it. And I'm not. I'm not trying to say it's. Uh, you know, it's it's good, or we shouldn't worry about it. Um, there's some. There is some worrying stuff in here about what they're doing, but they don't. It needs to be fought on policy terms. It needs to be fought because it's a bad thing. Mm-hmm. They're already doing these things. The legislation is almost a, a distraction from it in a way. Hmm. So you you say that people will still be able to claim asylum. But will they be granted refugee status? Because uh, reading the legislation closely, it appears to create a two-tier system where if you're resettled and you're brought in with regular papers, you get granted the refugee status. If you come in on a boat, you're unlikely to be granted refugee status and are given some precarious status, which is renewed every 30 months. That's a significant change, isn't it? Well, refugee status is kind of, it's its not really defined that well in the Refugee Convention. It's just a kind of, it's not a term that you'll see in the Refugee Convention itself. Mm. And if you look at the Refugee Convention, um, a refugee doesn't get permanent settlement in the country of refuge. Um, in fact, if things improve in their home country, they can be removed. There's the what we call the cessation clauses. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically, if everything's fine back home, you can be you can be sent back home. So that idea of kind of temporary refugee status isn't mm-hmm. itself necessarily incompatible with the Refugee Convention. I think there is a problem with treating some refugees differently to others, so discriminating between them, because the Refugee Convention says you shouldn't do that. Mm-hmm. And also, as refugee uh, asylum lawyers and campaigners, we often focus on the entry to the to, to a country like the UK, and then also on the the way that the definition of a refugee is applied. Is applied, mm. um, but actually, the Refugee Convention's got um, loads of articles, including rights to employment, to wage earning employment, um, to self employment, to education, to healthcare, to social security, and it's quite a it's quite complex um, mm. set of rights, which. Are sort of attached to you at different stages of your your metaphorical journey as a refugee once you've got lawful status once you've got uh, lawful stay and these slightly different terminology that you see in the convention but um you know it, it's not just about um literally not being sent back mm. it also gives you certain rights and there's some pretty strong arguments that the legislation before parliament at the moment um goes behind the Refugee Convention. It breaches the Refugee Convention um, by saying that some refugees can't have those rights. Mm. So in cases where people feel as though they've been discriminated against, where they feel that they've got exceptional grounds to be granted refugee status but aren't given it, um, what kind of recourse have they got? Because that potentially there's violations there of the Refugee Convention and discrimination is being done, what what can they do? Are we likely to see test cases come before the British courts? Yeah, we're likely to see litigation on this and, and um, you know, lawyers are likely to get involved. But legal challenges to some of this will be quite difficult, actually, because um, where you pass an act of parliament, where an act of parliament becomes law, mm-hmm. the judges are stuck with that. They, they can't say 
that it's it's incompatible with the refugee convention and therefore they're not going to follow it that's not how our our court system works Mm -hmm. and it's all very well for somebody like me to say well that's in breach of the refugee convention but you're asking exactly the right question which is so what um Mm. what what then happens what flows from that and the answer is nothing because a government can breach international law um and it's it's not that there's some international court of refugees that will tell them that they're breaching international law or order them to put it right and the government would then comply with or something like that and of course you see countries around the world Mm. always breaching international law and treating refugees badly even though they've signed up to the refugee convention so it's about kind of norms of behavior and and decency of behavior um so yeah i I think that you know there there might well be a strong argument that something breaches the refugee convention but actually then bringing a court case isn't quite as straightforward as just saying to a judge this breaches the refugee convention please you know rectify that breach in some way that's not that's not how the legal system works unfortunately Hmm. okay i mean that's that's very serious because i'm 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 thinking this is harking back and, and rowing back to a period before the Holocaust and World War II where refugees couldn't leave their country because they, they needed pre-authorization. And Britain was one of the countries that, that drafted the Refugee Convention because it wanted to offer safe passage. So how have we got here, Colin? Is this, are we back to pre-authorization? We are, and we have been for some time, quite frankly. So, and the academics call this externalisation of the border. So, the idea that the border isn't on British soil where somebody can claim asylum, but it's actually abroad. And that's, um, you know, so if you want to get on a plane and come to the UK, mm-hmm. then if you're from a country where people claim asylum from, then you have to get prior authorization before you get on the plane. And the plane won't carry you because if the plane does carry you to the UK, they'll get fined £2,000 per passenger and have to take you back again when you don't get admitted. Um, so, you know, that's one example, kind of visas are, are used as a form of externalisation. Mm-hmm. You also see the um, all the security at Calais and along the French coast, mm-hmm. sort of to keep people out and stop them from reaching our shores where they could legally make a claim for asylum. And w- one of the things that the bill does, which is, is bad news, although I'd question whether it will have any practical impact, is that it says that you can no longer make claims for asylum in the territorial seas of the United Kingdom. It's like the reason I, that sounds, that sounds like really bad news to me, and it is bad news. It's, it's clearly not compatible with um, the way the Refugee Convention works and so on. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, what is a border force jet ski cowboy going to do with somebody who they've intercepted? They, they can't just leave them at sea to drown. That would be a criminal offence in, in British law, in fact. Mm-hmm. Um and, um, you know, they can't take them to France because that would involve invading France, basically. I'm not sure some of the MPs who suggest this stuff have really quite thought through that you can't just go to France and drop people off there without the French without French permission. You haven't got a third country that you can take them to. You know, there's been talk in the media of it being maybe, maybe Rwanda will take our refugees, maybe Albania will take our refugees or whatever. Those countries are all denying that they will and saying... Um, Basically, we're not doing your 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 job for you. Um, so, what are you going to do? Are you going to bring them to the UK anyway? So, saying that they can't claim asylum in territorial waters doesn't really achieve very much because you've mm. got to bring them to the UK because you can't take them anywhere else. Yeah, I don't think I've ever heard anybody, any previous Home Secretary, use the word illegal immigration as much as Pretty Patel says it ad nauseum. Um, she keeps on putting out this message 
that people who arrive through irregular means will be criminalised. Does this bill do this? Will people who arrive here without pre-authorization will they be criminalised? The short answer is yes. So I, I was struggling to believe what I was reading when I was going through the legislation at first, and I, I'm, I still struggle to believe that I can be right about this. But it, it very much looks to me and to, to colleagues and other people who've looked at this hmm. that it basically criminalises almost every refugee who comes to the UK to claim asylum. Um, because they almost all have to arrive by regular means. There isn't a safe and legal route to apply to come to the UK. So, you know, we do have a resettlement scheme, which is good and it is right and it's proper. Um, it's been about 5,000 a year previously. There's talk about expanding it beyond that and having an extra 5,000, whether the old one disappears in the meantime, I'm not sure, and it's 10,000 or maybe it's 5,000 going forward. I just don't know. But anyway, mm-hmm. you know, the, that resettlement scheme is good, but you can't apply for it. So you just have to hope that somehow you get selected from you know one of the refugee camps in in different countries you, you can't put yourself forward for it you just have to be picked basically by by unhcr so there are no safe and legal routes to to apply to come to the uk so people do come by irregular means and you know there are about thirty-five thousand asylum seekers arriving in the uk every year at the moment the, the numbers vary from year to year a bit they're a lot lower than they were at the peak in about 2002, 2003, when we're talking about over 100,000. So, you know, it's a lot lower than that. But literally, the Home Office seems to be putting forward legislation which would lead to 35,000 people a year being put in prison for six months or more. Well, um, will, will, they, like, will they really go to prison? Or the introduction of accommodation sites... Like Napier and Penali is where is where people will be will be housed. Is is will they really no, go to prison? Both. They're not incompatible. They'll have both of them. So first first of all, you'll go to prison. And mm. we we sort of had legislation that was that, that did this before in about two thousand and four, the Treatment of Claimants Act, Asylum Immigration Treatment of Claimants Act. And there was a kind of documents offence in mm. that, which a lot of asylum seekers um, were found. To be committing essentially it was to do with not having a, a passport and eventually the courts kind of interpreted it in quite a narrow way and they the home office stopped stopped prosecuting but what happened back then was basically refugees would um be picked up at um at, at the port or or at back of a lorry or wherever it was in country and then they'd be hauled in front of the magistrates who would send them to prison for six months and they'd go to prison for six months um, and then um, they'd come out and then they'd start their asylum claims and then they'd get sent off to asylum accommodation. So in theory, that's what will happen with this new offence. And I suppose the Home Office thinks that by sending everybody to prison, less people will come. And that's what academics call deterrent effect, by deterring people from coming. If you treat them really badly once they get here, basically, then less people will come. Mm. But there's never been any evidence that that works. Mm. Um and, you know, if it didn't work, then we'd be looking at 35,000 people a year going to prison. And you have, you'd have to build a lot of prison places for that to yeah. happen. And, and, you know, you just have to think, well, what is the point of that happening? If, if it's not actually deterring people from coming, if it's literally just punishing them for the act of claiming asylum. Why on earth would you be spending millions and millions of pounds doing that and also these people are genuine refugees. You know, they'll be allowed to stay here 
Mm. What, what on earth do you think you're doing putting them in prison as your welcome to Britain kind of first yeah. gambit and mm. then ultimately they're going to get to stay in the long run it's like it's just absolutely nuts in terms of sort of public policy yeah it sort of undermines integration as well and access to employment uh, it yeah, makes that makes that they've, they've all got a criminal sentence and you know they've all got a criminal record before they before the you know, almost as soon as they've set foot on British soil, and then they they get to stay long term as well. Although you know the Home Office says, oh well, that it'll be temporary, but it's supposed to be temporary at the moment. Actually, the government introduced what they call safe return reviews back in something like 2014. Mm-hmm. They're just they're, it's just an administrative step. Nobody actually gets removed as a result of it, and it's it's worth emphasising as well. You know, mm-hmm. you wouldn't know this from the rhetoric that you see from people like Priti Patel, mm-hmm. but the number of enforced removals that take place is at its lowest ever um, level. And that was, and I'm, I'm talking before the pandemic, obviously removing mm. people during the pandemic was quite quite difficult for the Home Office because there weren't any flights and so on. Mm. But um, even before the pandemic, it was at its historic lowest level since um, since at least, I think, the, the turn of the millennium. Does, um, does the spill change that? Does it give her more power to remove people? No, it doesn't. It doesn't. I mean, the, the Home Office might claim that it does, but the, the problems that we see in the asylum system are the initial stage where the Home Office is considering the asylum application for the first time, mm-hmm. there are huge delays building up there. There are the, the average waiting time is now well over a year. The target used to be six months, mm-hmm. um, and it was met in the majority of cases. We're now talking about people waiting, you know, well over a year for an initial decision from the Home Office. And what you see in this this new bill is lots of stuff that complains about people submitting late evidence or using some legal wheeze or something like that. Was that has got nothing to do with the delays at the Home Office? You know, it's it's just that they they haven't got enough staff. The staff aren't working efficiently enough. Mm-hmm. They're just not deciding claims quickly enough. And it ignores the fact that actually half of people are getting asylum from the Home Office at the first asking. You know, we're talking about literally half the people who claim asylum get asylum from the Home Office. And then of the people who appeal, which isn't necessarily everybody, mm. um, about half of them get asylum from an immigration judge as well. So you know, we're talking about a lot of people who are actually genuine refugees, according to the Refugee Convention. Mm. Um and then the Home Office doesn't try to remove them. And it's kind of implicit policy these days is what the Americans call self-deportation. It's the mm-hmm. idea that you make life really hard for people once you've refused their claim to the mm-hmm. point that they're sort of forced out of the country. But it just doesn't happen. People that aren't forced out of the country, they they kind of go underground. They, they start to live in this kind of illegal um, sort of underclass of, of people who don't have lawful status. Mm-hmm. Um, and... You know, it, it just again from a public policy point of view, it just it just doesn't make any sense. If you are going to refuse people, mm-hmm. either remove them or or at least give them a route back to legality or something, but just sort of putting them into this kind of limbo state of sort of um, unable to work, unable to use a bank account, unable to rent decent accommodation, and so on. It's just it's really bad idea. Mm. So, what, what do people face when they arrive and and claim asylum now? Will their, will their cases be fast-tracked? And what's happening with appeal rights? Because Pretty Patel has said a lot about trying to streamline the process. Yeah, it's um, it's quite annoying, frankly. If you actually know what you're talking about with this stuff, it's really mm. annoying what she says. As well as it's, it's always irritating when you're being attacked as a lawyer anyway. But yeah. um, like I say, the, the delays in the system are at the home office end of things on the initial decision. 
Mm. So there's no there's no question of late evidence at that stage. There's no question of using clever legal wheezes or the appeals taking too long or something. It's well before any of that becomes relevant. Um, and all this bill concentrates on is the stuff that happens after the Home Office has made a decision. But the mm. tribunal is pretty efficient. So the tribunal average waiting time for an asylum case before the pandemic hit was six months. It was um, 26 weeks, I think it was, when I was looking up the stats. Mm. So that's a lot faster than the Home Office. So going on about, you know, all the problems caused at the appeal process and so on, it's just it's just distraction from incompetent management of the Home Office where they basically can't do their own jobs properly. So trying to blame, you know, lawyers and requiring some sort of, you know, super fast track system and curtailing appeal rights, none of that gets to the heart of the problem, which is just bad management of the Home Office. Mm. And on offshoring, do you think that's a gimmick? It's a political gimmick? It's not going to happen, is it? Well, I, I've got very mixed feelings about this because my, my own feeling is it's not going to happen and it looks to me like a gimmick. But mm. I'm also conscious that I could be wrong about that. And, you know, it could be that in a year's time or a month's time or two years' time, suddenly Priti Patel does negotiate some sort of deal with another country that allows them to remove literally tens of thousands of asylum seekers every year to be put in prison camps there um, until they agree to go home or, or whatever, just like Australia did, mm. except with much smaller numbers. Um, it just doesn't seem very likely to me. Um, you know, there are huge problems with finding a state that would agree to that, um, as we've seen with Albania denying that it's, it's going to do it. You know, that was just in the news yesterday, I think it yeah. was. Um, we've seen Rwanda deny it. We've seen Uganda deny it. So finding somebody who's willing to agree to that is problematic. Human rights law is a is a big barrier. So the Refugee Convention, and it, this is this is all sort of um, controversial areas of international law. So mm. you know, I think w- w- with what I say, other people might say say otherwise. Mm. Um, I don't think the Refugee Convention itself stops a state from removing somebody to a genuinely safe country, but that is a big rider. You know, finding a genuinely safe country where they're not badly treated is is not as easy as it might sound to Priti Patel. Mm. Um, but human rights law, I think, does stop that from happening. And, and because if you imagine what, what you're going to have to do with those refugees once you've removed them mm. is, is detain them, because otherwise they'll just come back to the UK again, they'll just resume their journeys. And if, this, if that country isn't a long way away, at least anyway, um, and if you're talking about a very poor country that might be willing to reach this kind of deal with the United Kingdom in exchange for cash, what are the conditions of detention going to be like? You know, And if it's inhuman and degrading, then human rights law says you can't send somebody to do that. Um, and it could be that, you know, this is the issue that leads to the UK withdrawing from the European Convention on Human Rights. So human rights law is removed as an obstacle. It could be that we end up withdrawing from the Refugee Convention. But, you know, at the moment, there are you know, practical problems with finding a country. There are legal problems with some aspects of international law. It just doesn't seem like it's going to happen. It's going to be one of those things that is always talked about and it's always about to happen, but it never actually does. Mm, Dominic Robb is not is not a fan of the Human Rights Act, and he's now Justice Secretary. Do you think that because of all of these obstacles that the government will face in trying to implement their policy, they may turn to a position where they bring in a Bill of Rights that protects citizens only and gets rid of the Human Rights Act? 
I think it is alarming that that Rob is Justice Secretary, and he, he certainly has a, a record of um, opposition to the idea of um, the Human Rights Act and so on. But you know, the government's been in power now for what eleven years. Mm-hmm. They've been complaining about the Human Rights Act for that whole time. Um, they haven't done anything about it yet. There are problems. It's, it's not the bogeyman that they think it is. It doesn't cause the problems that they think it does. Um, and unless you withdraw from the European Convention on Human Rights, there's really not much point for you know, scrapping the Human Rights Act and replacing it with a Bill of Rights or something like that. Um, I think it's perhaps more useful to politicians as something that continues to exist. They can continue to complain about because it goes down well with their with their base. So again, I just I don't expect anything to happen, although mm. you know, it could be proven wrong on that. Yeah. And Colin, in your in your book, finally before before we conclude, you talk about um, a very large, undocumented um, population which could reach some one point one million people. Do you think the government is aware that there is that many people who are undocumented, and have they offered a path to to documentation or some form of legal status in this bill? I think I think that's a really good question because, to my mind, that's one of the outstanding sort of most problematic features of our current kind of immigration system, if you if you can even call it that. Yeah. Um, and, and in the book, I call them the unauthorized population because I think there's, there's this problem with the word undocumented. It's one that has been lifted from dialogue in the United States, and that's mm-hmm. the word that they use over there. Mm-hmm. But here in the United Kingdom, one of the reasons that the Windrush scandal kind of bubbled up to the surface is that there were people who had lawful status according to law but didn't have the documents to prove it for various different reasons and now couldn't get them so i I think there is a difference between certainly in the context of the united kingdom there is a difference between being undocumented and, and unauthorized um there are you know there are real difficulties estimating the size of the unauthorized population because Mm. That they're not easy to count. You know, they yeah. keep they keep themselves to themselves. They keep below they keep low profiles. The Home Office isn't interested in having an official count. You know, they're not interested in sort of an official measure because they'd rather not know. I think when it comes down to it, and it would make them look bad basically if there was an official number and people would start to say, "Why haven't you removed them all? How many are you going to start removing?" and and things like that. Mm. Um, so, but academics have tried to look at this and they've used various different. Um, ways that you can try to calculate it is really complicated basically it's it's beyond me frankly so all Mm. I can do is read what they say Um, and you know the the high estimate that I've seen is about 1.1 1.2 million I think Mm. Um, there's always a range that they give it could be a lot lower than that down to 800,000 or so in that that set of estimates other people have said that there are problems with that methodology that it might well be a lot lower than that Mm. so it's really difficult to sort of quantify the numbers but there are a lot of them and yeah. it's no surprise because we've made it really hard for people to comply with the immigration rules mm-hmm. we've made those rules really rigid so that it's very easy to fall foul of them mm-hmm. and we've made it very expensive to make applications to stay here so some people can't afford it and we've also made it really hard to bring yourself back into lawful status because if you've got a period of unlawful residence unauthorized mm-hmm. residence then you now have to wait 20 years before you qualify 
um, for, for lawful residents. It used to be 14, which was, I thought, a long time. It's now 20. Um, have, so they, have they reduced that? Is, that? is that remaining the same in, the, in this bill? People will yeah, still have not, to work for 20 years. changed by the legislation. That was changed in 2012 by Theresa May. Um, and we've seen some proposals. So um, there's a think tank called the IPPR, which has looked at you know the, the different sorts of routes that you could create to try and help people back to legality in a mm-hmm. relatively uncontroversial way without using the dreaded amnesty word. Um, you know, personally, I think an amnesty would be a really good idea because just the scale of the issue now is so huge. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've had kind of de facto amnesties before, but it's a very politically charged controversial word and concept and having a set of sort of um, ways to to bring people back instead of having an amnesty might well be more politically feasible frankly um but i think that that is just such a big issue and politicians are never questioned about it they never talk about it they never admit it um but you know having all these people who are unauthorized in our society part of our society but excluded exploited i just think that's a really again i keep on using that word public policy it's yeah. a really bad idea it's a really bad piece of public policy yeah boris johnson is is on the record saying that he would grant an amnesty but perhaps it was political expediency when he was mayor of when he was running to be mayor of london where yeah, I mean, where the, the unauthorized population is is largest yeah i mean boris boris johnson's willing to go on the record to say you know green is blue and the sky is down you know holding him to account for what he said previously is just is a mugs game um and it but you know the 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 right-wing media would go nuts about Mm. an amnesty it makes it quite hard for politicians to do that um a lot of members of the public would be understandably quite anxious about that because it makes it sound like lots of foreign criminals will be getting status and things like that. That's not really what will be happening, but that's what it sounds like. Um, so I can understand why there is this kind of political reticence around the issue, um, but it doesn't mean that you can ignore it. Um, you know, you, you, having this really large group of people in our society who don't have lawful status is a really bad idea, and politicians ought to be more responsible about how to not just um, help them back to legality, but also how to stop it from happening again in future. Because if you don't change policy, then it just kind of, the, the problem just recurs and you, you keep on forcing people into this um, sort of half-life status. Um, and we need more fundamental reform that helps people stay within the rules. Mm-hmm. No, it's been, a, it's been an absolute, absolute pleasure speaking to you, Colin, about this and... Thank you so much for giving our audience insight into this new nationality and borders bill. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks. So thank you for listening to this episode of Still Your Eyes. If you'd like to learn more and contribute to the work that CARAG does in the community, you can go to www.carag.co.uk where you can read our blog and subscribe to our newsletter. You can also make a donation here if you wish to. Don't forget to follow us on our social media. Our handle for Twitter, Facebook and Instagram is at Coventry. So until the next episode of Still Your Eyes, thanks for joining us and goodbye.